You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. I need an escape after helping my kids with their distance learning all day. I'm Melissa Caruso. I'm Rowena Miller. And I'm Marsha Ryan Maresca. And this is episode 24, Dress for the Quest You Want. Well, dear listeners, welcome back again. We are so excited today to welcome a very special guest to the program. Melissa Caruso is here joining us today. Melissa, would you be willing to tell us a little about yourself and a little bit about your books? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Well, my name is Melissa Caruso. I I write fantasy with intrigue and explosions. my Swords and Fire trilogy, which begins with uh, The Tethered Mage, is out uh, completely out now from Orbit Books, and I have a new book coming out on June 2nd, uh, The Obsidian Tower, which is the start of a new trilogy uh, in the same world. Uh, and that... Oh, I was supposed to have my notes open. Ah, uh, skip this part. Um, <laughs> Magic of editing. <laughs> there we go. I have it now. Um, uh, and the Obsidian Tower is the first book in the Rooks and Ruin trilogy. Uh, it's about a woman with broken magic who is the warden of an ancient castle with a sealed tower. Her family has passed down one warning through the generations, which is that nothing must unseal the door. But one night, while she's hosting delicate diplomatic negotiations, a deadly incident leaves her with blood on her hands and unleashes a terrible threat, as well as her family's darkest secrets. Very much. And and I I was lucky enough to get to read an arc of this book, and it was excellent. It was a wonderful, um, wonderful book. I enjoyed it so much. Um, So, and just you know, listeners, if if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing it's because you like world building, and Melissa does a great job of it. Um, And it's really fun um, to see between the two. Um, well, the trilogy and then the new book and the new trilogy coming out, just the consistencies within the world and also how the world develops over time. So it's a fun one to read, readers. Um, if you're if you're into world building, dive into it. Thank you so much. And you've got a book coming out soon, too, don't you, Rowena? Speaking of books coming out, yes, I do. Um, The final book in the Unraveled Kingdom, Rule, is out May 19th. Um, So So exciting. If you're stuck at home with nothing to do, uh, pre-order from an independent bookshop near you, I guess we can say. (laughs) Excellent. That way you can slam through an entire trilogy while you're locked up in your house. Exactly. Really no better way to spend the time. (laughs) This is true. So today I'm really excited um, because Melissa comes to us today to help us talk about, um, you know, we talked about textiles and, and a little bit about clothing, but we haven't really gotten into the nitty gritty of how do you like costume a character? How do you kit out a character um, in a way that is world building consistent? Um, so we're going to dive into that kind of a deep dive, nitty gritty, little craft details will percolate up through this episode. But one question I had to kind of lead us off, can you think of any, um, like iconic costuming choices or, um, iconic quest kits or things like that, that pop to mind, um, from fantasy worlds that you admire or that you just think of as examples of everyone knows fill in the blank. I think one of the things that that definitely sort of pops out is, to me, is in all the Harry Potter books, the very iconic ways that, like, school uniforms look and then how each individual person looks within their school uniforms. And to the point where then, as soon as, like, the movie is made, when you see that, you're like, oh, yes, that's it. That's it, exactly. Because it is so well defined in such an easily iconic way. And I think that's always the goal when you're designing like the clothing or costume or quest kits for your characters is you want it so that you know god willing when there is a movie or fan art or anything like that that who they are instantly pops out is like oh yeah that's the character i see it perfectly for me the uh in terms of defining costume one of the things that always jumps to my mind is uh in a darker shade of magic kel's coat 
Uh, it's right there on the first page. First of all, it's a super cool magic item where you turn it inside out and you get a different coat every time. And, uh, and it's also very character defining for me. I love it. I want it. Uh, also very easy to cosplay. Um, and the other, the sort of counter example of the, the sort of, um, I can't help but think of character builders or the gear in video games, which is sort of the counter example of what you probably don't want to do in a book where, uh, you know, you look at the gear that your character technically has on them in a video game. It's like, oh, well, naturally I have 15 backup swords, 80 pounds of dragon meat, you know, a ladder. And, uh, yeah, I just found this. I'm dragging along this entire antelope corpse that I'm going to strip down later in my workshop. And it's just not really realistic at all uh you can get away with it in a video game because it's kind of a convention but i probably wouldn't try doing that in a book <laughs> you know i feel like the only video game i can think of that avoids that is oregon trail do you remember old school oregon trail and if you shot too much meat you weren't allowed to carry it back like if you shot a buffalo you only got like half of it do you guys yeah. remember that oh yeah it's just brutal the realism <laughs> oh. in terms of what you could carry in that one was Memories. brutal <laughs> <laughs> but marshall you're so right too that i think that because we're so used to in some ways um having kind of a, just a treasure trove recently of film and tv adaptations of fantasy works um seeing how that translates from description on the page to something you know very visual and and very concrete too you know i think often when we write costuming um it might be very evocative but it could go many different ways and there are many things that you know a reader might interpret from the words that we use but then a costume designer picks you know very specific concrete things to translate onto the screen and have a whole aesthetic behind it too so it's it's kind of fun I know for me, that's always been a big challenge. Like, I almost wish, like, back when I did theater and I, like, had a costume designer, I could just be like, these are my vague ideas and go and make that into something physical. And then they go and find cloth and come back and do it. And I'd be like, you are amazing. That's brilliant. And and I don't have a costume designer when I'm writing. <laughs> so I have to actually, I have to do the work of, like, figuring out what's, you know, what's this and what's it called. And I know, like, we joke sometimes that, like, the two big things you can always, when you get them wrong, you're going to hear about it, are guns and horses. But <laughs> but I think clothing is another big one, too, that the people who are into that, when you get it wrong, are going to be like, you got this very wrong. Especially if you're writing something that's strictly historical. But when you're writing something secondary world and you, like, play mix and match with your things historically... People are probably going to get mad at you anyway, even though it's technically not wrong. But they're going to be like, you have that kind of stocking with that kind of corset. What are you even doing? <laughs> jumping back to um, jumping back to adaptations for a second. I, I think that that really kind of came out a lot with the Outlander series um, that, you know, it's a historical fantasy. So it's fantasy, but is set in historical time periods. And I think that the costume designer had a really difficult job to evoke the fantasy elements, to evoke the fact that it's a time-traveling person with different, you know, ideas about how clothes work and what she's going to think is pretty and what she's going to, you know, take back in terms of how she wants to wear her clothes and then put it in historical setting. And and I don't think there's any way to do that without, like, irking some authenticity, you know, authenticity minded people um so it, but it was a really interesting exploration of how do you combine historical clothing with a you know fantasy concept yeah and i feel like uh you definitely the amount of leeway that you have to play fast and loose with what's historically correct really correlates to how historical you're trying to make your fantasy world like if it's straight up historical fantasy it takes place in the real world then you better pay attention. Uh, if it's a made-up world, then the more loosely it's based on ours, I feel like, you know, I, if you want to be like, okay, in my world they invented steel boning 100 years uh, earlier uh, compared to the, what the rest of costuming is doing at this point, uh, you can maybe get away with it as long as those resources are there. I don't know, maybe maybe <laughs> Rowena's no, going to disagree with I you. Actually, I, know I agree with you fully. And actually, the, the one, like, one of the few historical like anachronisms that I was like, I am going to make this work no matter what, is that I didn't want whaling 
in the world that I created in my book. Because I, yes. so I was like, but that means no whale bones. So what am I going to have the corsets made out of? What are the stays going to be made out of? And so I did. I, I just kind of imagined that they came up with how to make steel boning earlier than they actually did. And I was like, I'm just going to roll with this because this is important to me. We're, we're not we're not going to be slaughtering whales. I just, I'm not into it. Um, and we can't have plastic, so, and reed just breaks. So we're just going to have to go with something else. I had almost the same thought process, actually, where I was like, oh, boning, ooh, I have to have corsets, but I don't, I don't want whaling. Whaling is just no. Same thing with oil lamps. I was like, all right, we're just going to yes. industry oil in these lamps. <laughs> Who knows what's in there? We're not going to think you about know, it You know, and I'm hard. sure that, like. It's made with oil. You know, it's it's the oil that you get Exactly, for the lamp you know, oil. oil. Lamp oil. from <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> from lamp oil trees. But I think this, you know, raises good questions of, you know, whatever your character is wearing, using, carrying with them, like, it, it sounds stupid to say it out loud. It has to exist in your world, which means that it's a part of this larger network of questions about, you know, material culture and trade and how does this stuff all fit together. Yeah. I feel like if you, so you have two basic options, right? You can either be okay, I have a big, diverse world with robust trade network, and I'm not going to worry too much because you have access to everything from every climate. And, you know, if you don't want to go into that tiny depth, but if you're saying, no, no, I have a, a, a relatively isolated island or something or a monoculture, then you better pay attention to whether cotton would grow there uh, in that climate or, you know, whether you have the right kind of uh, processing techniques to, you know, otherwise people are going to notice who are more knowledgeable than I am. Frankly, I go with the robust trade empire. Option. Which honestly is, is pretty darn realistic for almost any historical analog that you can come up with that like trade exists pretty far back and pretty far reaching. So you can, you can get away with that and feel pretty comfortable with it. Good. <laughs> Though I find it fascinating that off, sometimes we, even with secondary world fantasy, you'll get people will be all like but that's not how it's supposed to go i remember way back in the day when i was still sharing my my you know never to be published book that that is never going to be published to, to beta readers and all that and somebody complained about like the <laughs> cannons on the ship like that they would not have developed cannons or whatever i'm like what are you talking about they wouldn't like <laughs> like she was mad yeah she was mad like <laughs> like historically the cannons wouldn't have been developed because of this. I'm like, but who's they? <laughs> yeah. It's like, right. it's a made up it's world. It's a made up to, world. Yeah. You have to, you have to roll with the, it's a made up world sometimes, but, but I do like to, to delve into the like, okay, it is made up world, but when did they develop the gunpowder or things like that? Like that's, I think a fun thing to do because that's the weird way I think about things. But at the same time, it's a made up world. You're, you're allowed. I think one thing that is important, though, is to make sure that once you do introduce that they have a thing, to uh, remember that, okay, now that yeah. they have it, they're going to use it. Uh, you know, and that, and that goes back into the question the, of, of, uh, of what they're wearing and what they're carrying and how they're using it and things like that. Uh, if, if they have uh, a piece of, um, if they have a material, uh, how is that going to affect what, what else are they going to use it for practically, even if you just throw it in there as a random fancy cool thing that you made up? Oh, look, they have this color changing material. Isn't that fun? OK, well, the military is going to be using that for camouflage right. cloaks, because why wouldn't you? Right. Um, <laughs> or if you have, uh, you know, whatever else you have, you just have to think about how people are practically and pragmatically going to use that and also how they're going to use it for fun. Uh, I feel like high fashion would so incorporate, well, as Rowena knows better than anybody, would so incorporate magic if you had access to it. Uh, you know, if you could do twinkling lights in your gown or uh, make it smell really good or whatever, you know, people are going to use the uh, whatever they have access to in fun and frivolous ways as well as practical <laughs> I think that is so important to remember that often, you know, we, we are thinking of the ways in which the magic or the technology or whatever is serving our plot but our characters wouldn't think that way. They would think like, how can I use this to make my life easier? How can I use this to have fun? Can I get drunk off of it? Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, that there's, this is how humans yeah. behave. Humans, humans are, are not, you know, entirely pragmatic 
And they are also very pragmatic. So it's kind of, you have to you know, roll with any outcome that a character could come up with the use of something. They probably have. Yeah. I have a character in, in my book. I have one character who she's a mage and she's not a particularly like strong or powerful mage, but she likes to dance. And thus she's like, I can make myself light shows while I dance <laughs> and use my magic that way. <laughs> Cause nice. that's really all my magic is good for. And <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to use it to the best of my ability. And people would totally use it that way. I mean, just think about uh, all the ways uh, that you would just even <laughs> prank people with your <laughs> with your magic. Or if you could use it to, like, make your hair look better in the morning when you get up and suddenly have to deal with something. You know, there's just, I don't know. So I feel like there's a lot of blah, 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 blah. Never mind, that sentence is done now. <laughs> But, you know, I think that one thing, too, that you can think about in terms of, of availability in a world is also availability to the character that, you know, are there socioeconomic limits on on how much stuff costs? Is this affordable? I remember the first time I was reading Game of Thrones and they get to the part that the Night's Watch, like, wears black. And the first thing that went to my mind was black's a really expensive dye, which is such a, like, obnoxious nerd way to go. But, you know, it... There's a question of are are the things that you are having as part of your, you know, this is how this signals this character or this is what, you know, this character chooses to use. Have you built into the world things that that make that less feasible for the character? And obviously in, in Westeros, apparently black dye is not that expensive. It's fine. It's not a problem. But if you're doing like... It's from a thing that grows in the North France, and it's really like... <laughs> exactly. It's fine. It's not a problem. But if you've created yeah. something where, you know, well, gosh, yes, this silk comes from this place that's really far away and we have to import it and there's all these trade negotiations like you know maybe your servants wearing silk as a marker something shouldn't be something that you do because you've just set up a whole world where accessing that is very difficult right absolutely you know or if you do really want your character who's not rich to have something that uh, you've set up to be difficult to obtain then okay maybe they had to save up for five years and they have that silk cloak because it's just something that they desperately wanted and worked for or they stole or you know was given to them in response for a favor but yeah don't just have them have it and be like whatever this is this is my random cloak that i pulled out of my closet or you have the characters who somehow have are poor and broke and have no money but have like 25 knives for some reason <laughs> <laughs> And you have to ask yourself, are they just buying a knife every time that they, <laughs> they get any money at all? And it's like, oh, I need a new knife. Who needs food when you have 25 knives? Priorities. And I think that you can do a lot of work, actually, yeah. by having your character have less, right? Because then that one knife has to serve all of these purposes. And they picked that knife very specifically and very particularly and. You know, I think that when you're talking about what is a character using on a regular basis, you can do, in a lot of ways, more work by having them with fewer possessions. Yeah, no, not to mention there's the question of, okay, how much junk do you really want to carry around? <laughs> like, you know, I've read fantasy books where there's the assassin who has 150 different tiny weapons <laughs> secreted about their person, or secreted, secreted about their person. And that's just... That would be so horrible. Can you imagine having a hundred tiny weapons? You just couldn't even move. You would be stabbing yourself. It would be heavy. If you sat down, you would be jabbing yourself in the rear. Like, it would, it makes abs. Why do you even need a hundred tiny weapons? You're not going to stab somebody with a hundred different weapons just for the heck of it. No. Unless you make it a whole thing of like, I had this special coat made <laughs> that has like all the different like hidden pockets and sheaths. So I can have my 90 different weapons all in there. And like, that's what that coat is for. So you can't get to create a reason for it. <laughs> but again, that's a thing you, 
you're right. You need to you need to make it interesting rather than just be like, right. oh, I just happen to have like nine knives all you know all up and down my leg, and they don't clink at all <laughs> when I like, walk. Like, no, it's an assassin. <laughs> right. They're they're supposed to be kind of subtle, and so if they're like clanking when they walk down the street, or like every time they sit down, <laughs> ow, oh yeah, that's an assassin. He just stabs himself yeah. in the thigh. Like it's it's not it's not going to end well for you. <laughs> If you even oh oh and there's this is one of my favorite uh, little tropes. So okay, you know how assassins always dress like assassins. Like uh, I, I actually I LARP and uh, it, uh, I was playing a game of Spot the Assassin with some friends once, and we determined that they all wear leather pants. It's just a rule, um, and I feel like this is this is very true in fantasy, particularly when people are actually dressing up in the costumes. But if if you're actually an assassin, the last thing you want to do is wear all close-fitting black and assassin boots and an assassin hood and just look as suspicious as humanly possible, <laughs> right? You want to blend in. You should just look like a carpenter or something and then surprise people when you stab them. Who's the assassin? It's who's ever the sexiest-looking person here. <laughs> right. Oh, they're sexy and they're wearing all yeah, black. avoid them. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, not to mention, like, if... And, and and perhaps I'm I'm mistaken and there there are ways to make um leather pants more um flexible than most historical methods allowed, but if you look at historical leather pants I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna take a tangent here for a minute. If you look at most historical leather pants, because leather breeches did exist like in the eighteenth century and, and before they had leather pants, the there's always a lot of extra material in the butt. Because you have to have somewhere for, like, your bendiness to go. So when you bend, there's some extra fabric so that you don't just split your pants. And so, like, I, I was I was watching the adaptation of The Witcher. And, you know, Geralt of Rivia comes on. He's wearing these, like, incredibly tight-fitting leather pants. And my first I was like, those are going to split the first time he, like, does a lunge. Because there's, like, no extra fabric there. It's oh, just, yeah. it, they're, they're shredding. They're going everywhere. So. <laughs> Apparently, Henry Cavill went through, like, 40 pairs of pants i was right <laughs> like he's just that buff and wearing leather that tight and it just he wore inappropriately tight leather pants yeah i have a friend who was uh notorious for in the middle of sword fights tearing you know busting his pants open in exactly this way when he would do like some kind of dramatic lunge because he was a uh, a nationally ranked fencer as well as a larper and he would just do a lunge and his seams would split and uh <laughs> It'd be super awkward. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's like when you look at some historical clothing and you think, wow, that's really unattractive or, geez, that's weird looking. Like, there's probably a practical reason for it. Like, sometimes it's just, yeah, they thought different things were attractive then. But, like, the the giant baggy, saggy butts on breeches and then the, like, oh, the crotches are really awkward, too. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop talking about it now. But it's... <laughs> There's a reason. It's because yeah. otherwise your pants are going to split in a million pieces and and then you're not having a good day. That's not to say, of course, that you can't dress your your assassins in sexy pants if you really want to. Like, there's <laughs> there's nothing wrong with assassins in sexy pants. You just have to kind of realize and accept that at that point you are being tropey and departing from reality and going into, you know, the same realm as, as uh, female fighters wearing stuff that they're boobs would fall out of the moment they swung a sword and you're just <laughs> realism is no longer your concern anymore <laughs> and then as a balance right because i think you know as much as on this podcast we frequently talk about the, the practical questions and the realism and how does this work and how does this fit together there's also an element to fantasy that's aesthetic right like does this feel and does this look and does this conjure you know an image that's conveying what I want it to. And, and sometimes the really practical answer item or clothing that you maybe should pick is, is not really fitting in that aesthetic. And I think it's a balance, you know, you've got the balance of both the, the practical and the aesthetic to consider. Right. If you have a super awesome looking idea that isn't practical and wouldn't really work, but it looks really darn cool. then I feel like that's fine. As long as, Every other aspect of your world isn't hyper-realistic, and this is going to stand out. But, you know, if you're doing the crazy, over-the-top, like, anime-inspired world where people have shoulder guards this, that you could <laughs> lay out a feast on because they're just that enormous, eh, 
whatever, fine. You're having you're, you're you're having fun with it. It fits your general aesthetic. You're going over the top. Swords three times the size of the person wielding it. Right, right. <laughs> Which is not even vaguely realistic. But if if you're just you know if whatever, you can just imagine that they have some kind of super light metal, and as long as you're not trying for realism with it, and you're consistent with that, we're just making stuff up. Feel you can get away with a little more. Well, and I think, you know, flair is realistic in and of itself, right? I mean, humans like to put on the ritz sometimes. And honestly, Melissa, I think that your books with, especially with the witch lords, like that's part of the package, right? Like it, it becomes part of the world and part of the culture that she has these characters, listeners, who um, they are rulers, but they're also all mages. And like, they they go full on aesthetic. Like, they, like it's like a, bust open the door and walk in with the giant cloak made of like god knows what like pangolin scales and feathers like just all over the place you know it's awesome and it's but it feels very realistic even though it's over the top because it's built into the world in a way that says no we're over the top and this is how we do so you better show up if you're going to show up well one of the things i was trying to do with that is um when you think about uh in a society what people do to display power Right. In a lot of our historical societies, wealth is power. And so people who want to display their power and their status uh, are going to cover themselves with jewels and gems and tons of embroidery that would have taken people a long, long, long time to do to show, you know, in fancy fabrics that they had to import from far away to show, look how powerful I am. I have all these people working to make this garment. I have all this wealth to get these rare materials. Uh, whereas uh, in my world, uh, in that particular country, magic is the highest symbol of status. That country doesn't care so much about wealth, so they're just playing their magic by being like, well, my dress is made of spiders. Can you do that? You know? <laughs> Listeners, there actually is a dress made of spiders. I, I don't know if that's clear. There really is. Read the book. It's awesome. Oh, thank you. <laughs> One thing, though, that is crucial in designing whatever, and like, yeah, some people are going to be extra and over the top and i'm all about that so many times in the things i'm writing but people need to dress for like the job they're doing and a lot of times the things you need to put them in need to indicate their job in a way that's clear and there can be different like rules that signal hey this is what my job is and you can have a lot of fun with playing with some of those cultural expectations Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's another case where, on the one hand, uh, you're, you're, where you're balancing um, pragmatism with symbolism. Like, okay, a great example of uh, totally impractical outfits that, symbol, uh, uh, that indicate what your role is as uh, clerical garb, right? Like, a lot of clerical garb tends to be purely ceremonial. You don't have to do anything more complex than hold up uh, symbols and things in it and, and give speeches. So that can be weird, weighty stuff that you can barely move around in, potentially, uh, if you have some kind of ceremonial robe or something. Whereas if you're a, a mercenary and you're going to be fighting in this, you would better be able to move in it. Or if if you're a carpenter and you need to be able to use your tools in it or whatever you're going to be doing, a farmer, uh, you have to be able to practically execute the tasks you're expected to do while wearing the outfit and i think one of the challenges that we face whenever we're doing any sort of secondary world building is is finding that balance between the things that we and our readers would be like oh this signals that this person is you know is a miner or is a sailor or something like that and that in the culture you built like this is another choose versus presume sort of thing like is that necessarily the same signal they're going to have or are you just sort of taking it from the things that we would that we would recognize like oh that's what the, that's what this means even though it doesn't necessarily fit in your culture that you're building like you have striped sweaters on your sailors like well we do that like yeah. the old school like popeye the sailor man kind of outfit but that doesn't necessarily yeah absolutely Sometimes you have to examine your expectations for what is practical even. Like, I think we have a lot of images of what a typical adventurer wears. And they tend to be, you know, wearing a cloak and they have maybe a bunch of gear on them and they wear a lot of heavy armor and things like that. Um, but you see this in characters who are just walking around town or traveling. And, like, if you've ever worn uh, chainmail for long periods of time... Like, if you're not actually expecting to be jumped, why would you do that to yourself? It's really heavy. Like, you don't walk 
around with your shield strapped to your arm if you're not expecting to be attacked. I have walked around all day with a shield strapped to my arm. It was a light shield that was not really worthy of real combat. And even then, it just gets really old. You can't really use that arm. It's heavy. I mean, you can use it as an emergency umbrella when it's raining or, like, use it as a lunch tray. But it's just really, you know, you don't, you don't kind of walk around looking ready for battle unless you're actively expecting to wind up in a battle. Or it's some weird symbolic sort of thing that's like, you know, we're not expecting a battle, but we, we need to look this way and carry these things because that is, those are the, the, the symbols of whatever we represent or something like that. But again, it's not a practical thing. It's a, it's a right. ceremonial thing almost. Although if your job requires you to wear ceremonial chainmail, I say you need a new job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's interesting, too, that, like, you have to ask the question of, of why in my world do I feel the need to signal this profession? Right. That, you yeah. know, maybe it, you could have a world that, yes, you actually people who are professional soldiers or professional, you know, fighters in any sense need to signal to everyone else just for for whatever reason you have in your world's value system that that's something you have to share. And instead of carrying around your shield or wearing chainmail, maybe they have to wear an armband or maybe there's a particular color. Like there are uh, as many old wives tales about things that prostitutes wear as I can. I mean, there's all over the board. I had a friend um, doing 18th century stuff who was making a new gown out of yellow wool. And someone was like, oh, no, 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 you, you can't wear yellow. Only prostitutes wear yellow. And we both like, what? Where are you getting this from? And it's some old apocryphal thing about prostitutes wear yellow that probably has some origin in some medieval code somewhere because all these different localities in the Middle Ages did have rules about things prostitutes had to wear to signal themselves. And some of them were colors or certain kinds of clothing. I think in one place in, in the Netherlands, it was a striped hood. You had to wear a striped hood if you were a prostitute, which in some ways like this makes sense for this particular time in history, right? That the value system is going to be very like anti, you know, sex outside of marriage, this bad sex, bad in this context. And there's a safety factor of like, okay, venereal disease is a thing. Um, But, you know, it's telling you something about the world if people have to signal themselves in some way in their clothing that, you know, my profession it's not just that I'm proud of it. It's that the rest of the world needs to know for some reason. Which is a big reason why uniforms are used. Like that's so people will be like, oh, that's a police officer. So therefore either, you know, I go to them for help or I stay out of their sight because, you know, then they'll arrest me or something like that. But that makes it that's a critical thing in terms of how we how you signal people in official positions of just like using the uniform or using you know same thing with military or you know special orders or you know you can have you can have the knights in your world instead of them wearing the plate mail all the time they can they can just have a fancy jacket and just wear the fancy jacket (laughs) (laughs) and it's a lot more convenient (laughs) well it's like there's this little um like mini piece of armor that survives into the 18th and 19th century military uniform um that um, officers would wear this little necklace, basically, um, called the gorget, that it's like the very last remnant of armor, but it signifies this is this is an officer. Hmm. Because once upon a time, someone of that status would have been wearing armor, but now that's not helpful. And obviously having them wear full armor is not helpful <laughs> for the reasons yeah. that Melissa has given us. So they wear just this one little piece that says, this is my rank, this is my status. Absolutely. And of course, there's also the question, even if it's not required by your profession of what are your characters, just like we would, what are they trying to say to the world with what they're wearing too? Just because they're a rugged adventurer doesn't mean they're not trying to make a statement. That statement might be, I'm a badass, you know, uh, watch out for me. Or it might be that they're trying to blend in, or it could be that they're making a fashion statement and they're flamboyant and everything. But uh, uh, just that it's a conscious choice of that character. Uh, I always think it's a little weird when people dress and i don't think i don't think you see this as much in professional stuff i hope but sometimes you'll see characters who 
the writer had an idea of how the character looked that ex- that they thought was cool, but doesn't necessarily match the clothes you would expect that character to pick for themselves. Uh, like someone who is not a fashion conscious character picking this really cool, suave, tailored outfit uh, when when they then go ahead to not seem to care about their appearance that doesn't make any sense or someone who dresses really super sexy but uh or don't aren't self-aware um just think about what your character would choose for themselves as well as uh how you want them to look and i think also that the recognition that your character is probably choosing their clothing in most circumstances like it's not like you enter a fantasy second world and you are assigned some kind of like here's your costume welcome it's a gray smock um (laughs) and that you know in most historical analogs most times and places there's some freedom to choose what you're wearing you may be constrained by economics you may be constrained by sumptuary rules you may be constrained by some things but most people are still choosing their clothing to some degree they're picking what fabric they're they're buying something secondhand but they're picking what they're buying they're you know retrofitting something after the fact or they're picking their accessories you know so i think that there's a trap that you can fall into where um we assume people would not be making active choices in their clothing and in their accessories and in the things that they carry with them. And most of the time, yeah, it's an active choice. I, I'm wearing this pink dress because I like pink. Right. It's a color I think I look pretty in, or it just makes me happy. I feel like that's especially important sometimes with uh, secondary and background characters. When, like, if you have a poor village, that doesn't mean everybody is wearing drab grays and browns that they rolled around in mud puddles in uh (laughs) even though we have this image that that's what poor peasants look like in our heads it's not like monty python and the holy grail where they're wearing burlap sacks and they're covered in mud like somebody picked this outfit out even if they don't have a lot of money you know maybe maybe they've like really patched it and tried to take good care of it you know maybe it's their one good thing or maybe they have at least they're not going to be literally taking sacks full of holes in them and just slapping them on without (laughs) trying to do anything with them (laughs) well and it's kind of a funny like where that came from actually has a lot to do with hollywood because in those big epics from like 30s 40s 50s when they were costuming these huge like casts of extras they would put all the extras in drab colors so that the main actors and actresses stood out but then we've internalized that as like well that's that's what medieval times looked like that's what the extras looked like (laughs) that's that's what everyone looked like and then it's only you know the princess who has a color on it's you know right like we tend to do this thing and i think it's a natural thing to fall into where like our primary characters we will like assign them a color palette so that again when like when the inevitable fan art or movie or anything like that comes about you're gonna get that like oh that's this character because this color this color and boom like it's instantly recognizable and it's it's almost like what you do with superhero costumes, like you make them as you know iconic and and recognizable as possible, so that once you see that, you can instantly be like, "That's this character." And I think we like to do that a lot, so we can then go back and introduce various characters in a quick, easy way because we just have like that color palette. Boom, then you know who that is. I think that's not even all that unrealistic because I know like if you open oh, yeah. my closet, there are blue shirts, black shirts and red shirts and that's really about it. <laughs> so, and I think that's I mean, I have a lot of friends who you open it, it's just black, you know, or or just just blues and greens. So, I think that's not even all that unrealistic. Maybe this is just me and my friends. <laughs> no, no, I think that, I think that there's a lot to be said. For no, I that. think that's very real. I have definitely come home and been like, I got this new sweater. Oh, I, it's the same color as this other sweater I have. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, at least I know I like it. You know, and I think one thing too, um, thinking about characters' personal choices and how they're choosing to present themselves. Um, and one thing we've talked about in the podcast quite a bit is, is gender and choosing versus presuming how people express their gender and how they, they fit into gender roles. But one thing that I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and out and say it. One thing that drives me nuts 
is when the only way that we shorthand or express a um, a woman being different or being pragmatic or being tough is that she dresses as a man. That that's the only way that we can kind of do that. And it's it's irritating because it's tropey to me. Um, and it's also irritating because it's just not not the only practical solution. That just because someone's wearing skirts, they can do all the same things that that men can do for the most part wearing pants. And the fact that men in a lot of cultures and a lot of historical spots wore skirts too. So (laughs) there's a pragmatic question here of like, what can your character do in the clothing? And just because we have a modern conception of, you know, this equals this doesn't mean that that's actually the only pragmatic way to go about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are certainly skirts that I would prefer to fight in over other, uh, over certain pants. Like, you know, those, those tight leather pants are much worse (laughs) to move around in than a nice light flowy skirt that isn't too long. So, you know, (laughs) I agree completely. You're not going to tear open the crotch in a skirt. That's just not going to happen. It's not going to (laughs) happen. Impossible. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And, um, it's also one thing that, uh, and we have, we're building fantasy worlds. We have complete freedom to reimagine uh, gender roles and clothing. Like, for example, one thing I loved about um, the movie The Fifth Element was that they had uh, men also wearing uh, fancy clothes with flowers and colors on them and lace and things like that at fancy occasions. And they had, they were sort of playing with the idea of, uh, you know, in our current era, we have men tend to wear very drab clothing. And it hasn't always been that way, even historically. I mean, as there, there have been periods where men were far more likely to wear really flashy stuff than women, or at least equally likely. Um, and now we have this era where men don't really have the same kind of, they don't tend to uh, as often express a really flamboyant appearance, uh, which is really unfortunate because there's some been some fantastic historical men's fashions i would love to see like the doublet come back but alas (laughs) i i was thinking about how in the pilot of star trek next generation they had like the pantsuit uniform and they had the miniskirt uniform and they had both men and women in the miniskirt uniform and then they just dropped the miniskirt uniform altogether but it was like that was just a thing that like (laughs) Anybody could wear the miniskirt uniform, and that was kind of cool. That's fantastic. Yeah, I was just thinking that too, Marshall. Because <laughs> we don't see enough of that sort of playing with the tropes, definitely on a visual level. And I think, because I think, again, we have these sort of like, even when we're doing secondary world fantasy, we have these ideas of how we signal what, be it like, we're, you know, we're going to put the tough lady in the leather pants because tough lady equals leather pants sort of thing, even when that doesn't necessarily fit in with the world. And yeah, you can make it be anything. So why not? Why not give everybody skirts and 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 hoop dresses and things like that? Because why not? Absolutely. Of course, when you do that, then you always have sort of the challenge of like, then are you giving your readers too, too steep of an on-ramp? to like get into like what you're doing. And I think that's where the hard balance is with that sort of thing of like, what's what works and what doesn't in terms of like, how far can you go? That's too out there before people are like, what the hell are you? (laughs) Hopefully I would think putting, you know, putting all your characters in hoop in hoop dresses is not too much of a, what the hell are you doing? If it's a fancy party, (laughs) why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, and I think the internal consistency comes into play there, right? Like if this is, if the very first thing that you do and the only thing you do to signal some slight differences in gender expression is that suddenly everyone's in hoop skirts. Yes, that, that's kind of a steep learning curve, but that's not necessarily <laughs> great world building. Like that's that's not complete yeah. and, and cohesive. So I think that, you know, we can we can trust ourselves when we're writing to write cohesive world building so that the, the more you know, comparatively surprising elements fit right in. It's like, well, of course that's how right. it would be because why wouldn't it? One thing that I have have noticed as a gender um, disparity, and this is something that's come up in some some pop history articles um, that aren't aren't actually great. And and I could digress for a long time on pockets. I won't. 
Um, maybe I'll post something on Twitter after this this airs. But the idea that um, women didn't have pockets in their dresses and in many historical periods, they couldn't carry things. What this misses is that women carried giant bags tied on their skirt underneath their skirts that were just stuffed full of things. Like I can fit way more in my 18th century pockets than I can fit in my purse. Those things are huge. Um, so just the idea that historically people carried stuff and in your fantasy world they're gonna come up with ways to have the things that they need to have access to at all times on them especially in fantasy worlds where people are moving around a lot like you may not be in your home when you need an item right absolutely and it's particularly if you've got a character as so many fantasy characters are who are deliberately setting out on an adventure of some kind. You're, whether whether it's that you're uh, sneaking into the castle and you're going to have all of your lockpicks and things on you, or whether it's that you're out on a military campaign, or whether that you're on an old-school quest where you're crossing all these miles and have all your stuff on you. I know that, as a, again, as my experience as a LARPer has been that, okay, we're facing a situation in a typical LARP that is not all that different than a lot of fantasy characters face, where you have to be ready for anything at all times. You never know when you're going to suddenly be jumped by monsters or when you're going to have to uh, pick a lock or something like that. And the amount of time that LARPers give to how they carry their gear on them it's just this huge consideration. You have to make sure that the things you need to be able to get out quickly, you can access quickly. If you have a healing potion, that has to be something you can whip out incredibly quickly. You don't want to be undoing buttons or going into your pack while your friend is dying. Uh, if you have <laughs> a weapon you need to be able to get out, like, again, those 42 throwing knives that your assassin has... If that's in a weird place where you've got to unbutton your pants, okay, hold on, wait a minute, this is down my tight leather pants, <laughs> how are you, you know, you're not going to be doing that in the middle of a fight. I hope not, anyway, that would be, that would be awkward, but, um, so, you, and, and if you're going to potentially be fighting in it, you have to make sure everything is very balanced. Uh, I know, for instance, I get dehydrated very easily when I'm fighting. And uh, I would love to be able to carry water on me. This is very critical and something that a lot of your adventurers are going to run into. But water is really heavy. And trying to fight while you've got a big sloshing water canteen on you is very difficult. And this is a challenge that I personally have not really found a good solution for yet. Um, and this, just things like that. Or if you're going to be crawling through the ventilation ducts in your sci-fi novel... You're not going to be wearing a backpack. Uh, there's just all these, uh, or if you're going to be climbing up the cliffs of insanity, you're not going to have all this stuff hanging off of you if you're pulling yourself up hand over hand. You just got to kind of consider how it's going to be balanced on your person, how much it weighs, whether it's accessible, uh, if it's going to make any sense. Yeah, I, I, I always am putting possibly too much thought into like the, with my characters, the various practicalities of what they're carrying and how they're carrying it. I have one character who, you know, he's, he's a thief who does, who does all these various heists. And he's also, he builds all sorts of gadgets. So he has this whole pre heist ritual of laying out his gadgets and being like, okay, which things do I actually want to take with me this time? <laughs> and, and how am I going to do that? But the other thing I would keep thinking, I ended up having this weird recurring bit in each of the books with Veronix because he has a bow and because of the way the fights go he keeps just having to just drop the bow and then oh, run. No. <laughs> and, and so I have this recurring bit of like he just keeps losing bows because like the the practical like oh I got to do this with my hands I can't you know I'm just going to have to drop it and and move and it just but I always was been like, what's he going to do? Like, what's he physically going to do with his hands? And just the management of that, it just kept tripping me up all the time. And I'm just like, run with it. Run with being tripped yeah. up. <laughs> run with him screwing up. Run with him like, I got to buy another bow. I think those are both really <laughs> realistic, though. Uh, the laying out of the gear is something that I absolutely have, again, done as a LARPer, saying, all right, I need this. I need... I need to absolutely have writing materials on me, you know, or I absolutely need to have um, some kind of light source, which, I mean, that 
what that's going to be is going to be very world dependent. Do they have magical light sources? Do they are they going to be carrying around candles and little tinder boxes? You know, what are they doing? Um, and also the bow. The, uh, so my daughter took up archery, and granted, we're not like hardened professionals, but stringing a bow is so not something you do while you're being attacked on the fly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nor do you carry around your bow strung, you know, if you're not expecting a fight. So I feel like there's this awkwardness for fantasy uh, archer characters everywhere where, you know, <laughs> okay, how am I going to get this bow strung? Right. Uh, I just, I, I, I don't, I'm sure that there's some special way to do it, but for us, it's it's this process. You have to step on it. You have to stretch it out with both hands. It's very, you know, if you mess up, you're going to be snapping your fingers really hard. So <laughs> definitely not something you're doing on the fly from horseback uh, if you weren't anticipating it. <laughs> so one thing I think about, too, is the length of time that whatever you're carrying with you has to last you for. So, you know, is your is your character suiting up for a heist that they expect is going to be over in the next four hours? Or is this someone who is putting on a full campaign pack because they're going to be on the march for months? And I think that that's, you know, it's it's kind of nuts to think about how much people did carry who had to be on campaign for a long time. Like, I think, like, the average, like pack for like the you know like 18th century british infantrymen is like it's like 30 50 pounds or something i mean it's, it's nuts it's a lot when you add in the musket and all this other stuff that they're carrying um though a friend of mine who i i reenact with and is also a veteran is like you know actually it's not that different from what a modern like fully suiting up is for the military so we do kind of get this idea of like oh it was all so different back then or oh my fantasy world must be oh so different and it's like well actually people doing that job now have similar complaints you know i imagine that a carpenter you know a medieval carpenter probably has similar complaints about i gotta like kind of carry this hammer but i also need this hammer and like a carpenter now is like Man, I need both these hammers. <laughs> I need nine types yes. of saws for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of carrying around the large packs, I actually my uh, my husband's uncle was contracted by the U.S. military at one point to study whether it would be possible for uh, soldiers to carry their gear on their head because <laughs> I love for real. I love that this is a study. I love it. Because he, he's actually my husband's uncle. He was in a book about mad scientists. He's, he's an expert in gates, gate, as in G-A-I-T-S. Just, he discovered in his research that, you know, there are, there are certain uh, places in Africa where traditionally people carry these, these burdens on their heads that were very heavy, and it didn't actually have any additional energy expenditure. So the study right. was, well, can we teach all of our soldiers to carry these massive packs on their heads this would be fantastic but the study ultimately proved that something you really have to have been doing since you were very small and trained for it your whole life you can't just suddenly train your marines to carry 40 pound packs <laughs> on their heads so we could have you know there's this alternate timeline where yes. that's yes. Oh. what the military does I, I think that this needs to be in a fantasy story now that warriors who are raised from from children to go on to become warriors also have to learn to carry all their stuff on their heads absolutely that's just <laughs> that's just how they learn yeah that's just how they learn um, and I don't know, I have to say, this is this was anecdotally, verbally passed me through the family, so I can't 100% vouch for its accuracy, but I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> and the other thing I think of when I think of everything people are carrying is I have friends who've done the Appalachian Trail, and that's where you have to carry everything you need for like a month with you, and the degree to which they will carefully plan out every single ounce, because you don't want to carry anything further i mean if you're going to be carrying it that far you don't want to carry any more than you have to they'll saw toothbrushes in half so they don't have to carry the other half of the toothbrush uh that's how much they care about not having the extra weight much as our video game characters like to carry around their their 42 pounds of uh orc meat or whatever (laughs) it's the same thing in terms of you know space travel like you're gonna every pound counts so you're gonna Make sure you can maximize what you're doing with everything you're taking up and not going to take anything up wasted. Or if you have something where you have like balloonists, they're not going to they need to know exactly how much they're going to carry. So that these are things these are things you can incorporate into the practical concerns of your characters instead of just being like, yeah, they got 
stuff. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Or you or you cheat and have Hermione just have her bag that has everything in it. Yes, never forget never forget the you magic. I mean, your... the magic can get you around a lot of these issues. It really can. <laughs> oh yeah. And that was the brilliant thing. It's like, yeah, I got a tent. Absolutely. I got these things. I got this portrait. <laughs> it's it's bigger on the inside. I would love to have a purse like that. So we are coming up um, toward the end of our hour, and before we move on to um, Melissa's piece of world building trivia to give us to our world i wanted to give us each an opportunity for one more in my book and so i wanted to know for each of you for one of your main characters what is one in world item that they always have in their pocket minox always has extra food and this is a thing that because in my book the mages magic burns calories so people who are mages like if you're doing magic you're gonna get hungry really quick so it's good to like just have like like extra like dried fruit or dried meat or something just on you so you don't pass out after you do something magically and so my editor was like we've reached the point in this book where like he should be at least prepared all the time because <laughs> he's not stupid like we've had too many words like oh now he's just gonna pass out so it's like have it be that he just always has something in his pocket and then you can have it like he ate that and you're and he's out but like he's always he should always be ready just in case <laughs> i like it absolutely i had a, a kind of a similar progression in that uh in in my books this is actually my first trilogy uh swords and fire my character amalia has a satchel and things kept getting added to the satchel after incidents happened in which she did not have and needed them. So uh, she has an elixir that she has to take to uh, stay alive due to an unfortunate childhood poisoning incident. She always carries that elixir with her. But then it, due to incidents in the book, as the books go by, she's carrying more and more backup <laughs> vials in different locations just in case to make sure that doesn't happen again. Uh, so And more and more stuff keeps getting added to the satchel, too, that was she learns from her experiences that she needs to carry. This reminds me of how I have like purse Advil and desk Advil and car Advil and other purse Advil and overnight pack. (laughs) Absolutely. So I think um, mine is that um, all of the female characters and some of the male characters too have pins in their pockets they have a pinball or they have some form of pins because so much of the clothing that my characters are wearing closes with pins. So if you lose a pin, then suddenly you're like, you know, you've got your, your front of your gowns gaping open or whatever. So you have to have spare pins so you can look put together at all times. It's like the equivalent of, of carrying like an elastic on your wrist or having bobby pins in your bag. Like you just, just in case. Nice. All right, Melissa, we would love to hear from you. We, we didn't actually talk about it very much today, actually at all today, but we are um, kind of building a second world live on air um, bit by bit. And it is our custom that when we have a guest star join us, um, that they leave us with a little piece of trivia for our world. It can be related to this episode or completely unrelated, any little thing you'd like. Okay, well, mine... Uh, not only do the skirts have pockets, but they can have pocket dimensions. Circle skirts with mystic runes along the hem are popular among the well-connected and wealthy. And with a little practice twirl and kneel, you can create a magic circle that will open a portal to another world. I love it. I love it. I love, love it. it. <laughs> I love the TARDIS dress. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Oh, that is fun. Well, Melissa, it has been so much fun having you with us. I hope that you had as much fun as we did. This has been... I did. Thank um, you so much. An absolute delight. Um, Listeners, do check out um, Melissa's trilogy that is already out and check out Obsidian Tower um, when it is out in June. And feel free to hit up Melissa on Twitter with all of your questions about what it's like to fight in a dress because... I have a lot of opinions (laughs) on that. She has a lot of opinions. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Hi, you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on May 27th and we'll be talking about Empires and Rebellions with Andrea Stewart. We're going to build up some nations, let them get corrupt and decadent, and then tear them down with a plucky band of dissidents. It's a time-honored trope and we're going to deep dive into it. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. In the Revolutionary War, many soldiers abandoned their heavy cast-iron cooking kettles while marching. One soldier wrote, I told my messmates I could not carry our kettle any further. They said they would not carry it any further. What use was it? They had nothing to cook and did not want anything to cook with. I sat it down in the road, and one of the others gave it a shove with his foot, and it rolled down against the fence. And that was the last I ever saw of it. We got through the night's march. We found our mask was not the only one that got rid of their iron bondage. So remember that when your heroes stop to make a stew at the end of a long hike. Mm-hmm.